Well, good morning, Village Church. Yeah, good job, Sarah. I don't know if you've ever had to stand up in front of a lot of people for that long and read something, but it can be a um, really nerve-wracking experience. So uh, we're happy that, Sarah, that you were all able to stand for the entire reading of the entire book of Jonah. So um, it is good to be with you all this morning. My name is Matt Bowman. I'm the other Pastor Matt here at the Village Church and just wanted to welcome you here this morning. We are, as Matt said, starting a new sermon series through the book of Jonah, and we're calling this God's Heart for the Hardest People. For the next four weeks, we'll be looking at one chapter a week in this short yet profound book. But this morning, my job is just to give you a general overview of the book of Jonah as a whole and identify some key themes and ideas that you should look at as we go through this book over the next four weeks. When you mention the book of Jonah, what most people probably think of first is that's the guy that got swallowed by the fish. And although that is part of the story, most people probably could not say more about the book beyond that. Isn't this mostly just a children's story? I mean, isn't this kind of just like a fairy tale? What could it possibly have to say to me or to us today? As we go through the book over the next four weeks, I think what you're going to realize is that Jonah is a deep and powerful book. It's a short book, to be sure. It's only 48 verses, and there are single chapters in Genesis that are longer than that. And it took Sarah maybe five or six minutes to read the whole thing for you this morning. And yet what we're going to see is that it is a wonderfully crafted book with rich layers of meaning and insight. Theologian T.D. Alexander called Jonah one of the masterpieces of biblical literature. And here I thought it was just a story about a guy and a fish. So my goal this morning is to give you a broad overview of the book, and I'm actually going to identify three key themes for you to watch out for over the next four weeks as we go through the book. And these three themes will help you to read the book of Jonah to be sure, but it will also help you read and interpret any book of the Bible. I don't just want you to come away from this morning with more information about the book of Jonah. I want you to come away better equipped to read the Bible for yourself. So let's get into it. Jonah, as Sarah read, was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel around the year 750 BC. The Bible certainly makes much of names, and Jonah's name is no different. Jonah's name means dove. Now today we associate the dove with peace, but in 750 BC it didn't have that connotation. Hosea 7.11 actually identifies the dove as a bird that is silly and senseless. And as we'll see, Jonah certainly lives up to his name. The dove was the bird that Noah sent out of the ark to find dry land. Jonah leaves dry land and seeks out the sea. In the second verse of the book, we're told that God tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, Nineveh was a great city in the Assyrian Empire at the time. It was the largest empire in the world that the world had ever seen up until that point. 
And actually less than 50 years after Jonah preached to them, the Assyrians would conquer Jonah's hometown. These were not friends of the Israelites. These were not people that Jonah would naturally like. These were hard people. But God tells him, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This was an evil city. This was an immoral city. And this was an empire that would conquer the northern ten tribes of Israel not long after this. Why would God want to send a prophet there? Why not just judge them, God? That's in your playbook, right? Do it again. You see, we think we know what God is going to do. We think that we can predict the places that God is going to show grace to and which places he won't. God wants Jonah to call Nineveh to repent. And Jonah doesn't want to go. In fact, he goes in the exact opposite direction. And he goes as far as he can go in that direction. We're told that he boarded a ship for Tarshish, which was at the far western end of the known world at the time. And this was not a short trip. This trip could have taken as many as eight months and could have cost, probably did cost Jonah a large amount of money. Jonah's buying a one-way ticket here. He's leaving home for good because he doesn't like God's idea. He doesn't like those Ninevites, as we will see. We're going to be jumping around the book a little bit here, so if you've got your Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. And I really wish that, you know, the English translations that we have didn't do this, but in the Hebrew it's very clear. The second half of verse 3 in chapter 3 literally says, Now Nineveh was a great city to God. In chapter 1, we're told that Nineveh was a great city, but in chapter 3, we're told that Nineveh was a great city to God. Jonah knew that Nineveh was a big city, but it wasn't a great city to him. It wasn't an important city, but it was a great city to God. Think about a place with people that you don't like. Or a place with people that have wronged you somehow. Now imagine God sends you to preach to those people. Do you think that San Francisco is a great city to God? Is Compton? Is Salt Lake City? Is Bogota or Johannesburg or Tokyo or Beijing? Is Tirana, Albania a great city to God? Or are all the great cities just the ones filled with people who look and think like you? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't like the people there. But here's the first theme in the book of Jonah that I want us to look at. God's plan of salvation has always been for all the nations. And I'll prove it to you. The first time we meet Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, here's what it says in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jonah had forgotten God's plan through the children of Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. Here Jonah is representing how Israel had grown inward focused. They were the chosen nation. They were the ones with the covenants and the promises and the blessings of God. But God never intended the blessings to stay in Israel. Israel's job was to go and bless the nations. So when Jonah runs away, he's forsaking the ultimate mission that God had given to the Jewish people, to bring blessing to the nations. This is one of the ways that we see Jesus in the book of Jonah, the true Israelite, the true prophet, and the true evangelist, who completed the work of salvation for all the nations. And regarding the salvation for all the nations, we come to our second theme to look out for in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, we see one of the clearest examples of God's providence and how God is in providential control of all things. In regards to seemingly natural events, God is in complete control. God hurls a great wind on the sea and there's a storm. God appoints a fish, and it swallows Jonah. God speaks to the fish again, and it vomits Jonah up. God appoints a plant, and it grows to shade Jonah's head. God appoints a worm, and it eats the plant. God appoints a wind, and it blows. And God calls an entire city to repent through Jonah's preaching, and they repent. God is in complete providential control. Literally, Jonah is the only disobedient figure in the entire book. Everyone else obeys. So when we talk about God's heart for the hardest people, Jonah is the hardest person. Jonah is the hardest person in the entire book. And what we see in Jonah and the Bible as a whole is that God is going to save who he wants. And he can do it with you, without you, and even in spite of you. Look at the end of chapter one. Jonah is hurled into the sea and the storm, storm stops. The sailors recognize that the God of Israel was the one who brought about the storm and then calmed it. And it says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now think about what happened here. Jonah was being disobedient. Jonah was literally running away from his mission as far as he could go. And he didn't even preach to these sailors. All he said was, I follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's all he said. And they became followers of the God of Israel. God saves these sailors in spite of Jonah's disobedience and to save foreign people. How great is God's providence to do that? God is going to save who he wants, with you, without you, or in spite of you. And you know what? 
because the providence of God cannot be thwarted by man's disobedience. It might appear sometimes that God has no control. Like we're able to frustrate God's plans somehow, or we can keep him from accomplishing his purposes. But in Isaiah, the Lord says, I'm God and there is no one, there is no other. I'm God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God's plans cannot be thwarted. They can't be undone by our disobedience. We don't always know what his plans are or why he allows certain things to play out as they do, but we can rest in the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of God to know that whatever he has ordained, it will be for our highest good and his ultimate glory. Now, it would have gone a lot better for Jonah if he'd obeyed the first time. I mean, he wouldn't have spent three days inside a fish, and he wouldn't have wound up in a pool of fish vomit on a beach somewhere. So it's better for you to obey God the first time. But God gives Jonah a second chance, doesn't he? In fact, he gives Jonah the exact same command in chapter 3 that he gave him in chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. He gives Jonah a second chance. Has God given you a second chance to obey him? Has he given you a third? A fourth? What about a tenth? Has he given you a one-hundredth chance to do the right thing? Of course he has. Because he knows we need it. And he's good and gracious to receive us any time we repent. Even the 77th time we mess up, if we come back to God and repent, God forgives us. God is certainly gracious to us, and he was certainly gracious to Jonah. He certainly was gracious to Nineveh. When they repent in chapter 3, we read, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Their evil deeds had come up to God. Jonah eventually calls them to repent, and they actually repent. And God relents of the disaster that he had planned to do. And this brings us to the third theme in the book of Jonah. When studying any biblical book, and Jonah is true of this too, be sure to pay attention to the vocabulary and the structure. Because the form and vocabulary of biblical books matters. Take the example that we just looked at at the end of chapter 3. The Hebrew word for evil is used four times in two verses. But this is obscured a little bit by most English translations and the unfortunate chapter break between 3 and 4. What it says is when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Next verse. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. In Hebrew, it literally says, and it was evil to Jonah a great 
evil. In English, we think repeating yourself is bad writing. We think it's a mark of someone who's unintelligent or has a small vocabulary and little imagination. But that's not how the Bible is written. When keywords are repeated, it's because the Bible is trying to make a point. It's trying to tell you something. It uses repeated vocabulary, especially in Jonah, to tie certain ideas together. Look again at chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 4, verse 1. The Ninevites get rid of their evil way. God relents from the disaster evil he was going to do to them. But Jonah, that was doubly evil. Now, you might not, might not like that it uses the same word for the Ninevites' moral evil as it does for the disaster that God was going to do to them. In Hebrew, it's the same word. It's evil. So when you translate the word evil as disaster, you kind of obscure the connection that the Bible is making here. But we do that because we don't like to attribute moral evil to God, right? Because God is not morally evil. Of course he's not. Of course God is not morally evil. But we can be confident of that going in. So rather than obscuring the connection here by translating words differently, a better question would be, why is the same word repeated four times in two verses? I think the answer is obvious. The writer wants you to see a contrast between Jonah and the Ninevites, who put away their evil, and God, who relents from the evil disaster that he had planned as judgment, but Jonah's still hanging on to his evil. It's even clearer if you go a little bit further in chapter 4, verse 6. In chapter 4, verse 6, the ESV says, God appointed a plant to, sh to shade Jonah's head to save him from his discomfort. The Hebrew word literally says to save him from his evil. It's the same word as five verses before. And if we pay attention to the repeated vocabulary, it's obvious that God is still out to help Jonah. God is still pursuing him. God still sees that he has evil in his heart, even after the Ninevites got rid of their evil. After the Ninevites repented and God relented, Jonah's still hanging on to his evil ways. And God is going to use this plant to try to save Jonah from his evil. To try to teach him something, to try to make a point. But if you don't pay attention to key words and themes like this, is one example, you miss these connections that the Bible is trying to tell us. Another example of repeated words or phrases in the book involves Jonah's location. Nineveh was to the east of Israel, and Jonah wanted to go about as far west as he could go. Once Nineveh repents, Jonah is the one who goes east out of the city. And I think this is echoing back to when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden after they sinned. They went to the east. In Genesis, when the people built the Tower of Babel, they built it in the east. Jonah is literally everywhere other than where God wants him. Here's a slide of some of the key words to be on the lookout as we go through the book of Jonah. The word great is used 14 times. The word evil is used 10 times. The word fear is used six times. All six times of fear are in the first chapter, by the way. 
Why is that? Come back next week. You'll find out the answer. But it's not just the vocabulary that matters. It's the structure of the book that matters. The structure of biblical books tells you something about the meaning of the book. Jonah is structured in four tightly composed chapters, and these chapters actually switch back and forth between positive and negative chapters. Chapter one is a negative chapter because Jonah disobeys. Chapter two is a positive chapter because Jonah prays for life and is delivered. Chapter three is a positive chapter because Jonah obeys. And chapter four is a negative chapter because Jonah prays for death. Chapter three is actually the inverse of chapter one and chapter two is the inverse of chapter four. And so knowing where you are in the story is going to help you be able to see what's going on and how to interpret where you are. This is not some fable that was just thrown together. This is a purposefully composed narrative about God's heart for the hardest people. Next, I just wanted to say one more thing about the structure of the book. Jonah is really unique because of the fact that it ends with a question. Maybe you picked up on that when Sarah was reading it. The last verse in the book actually says, is God asking Jonah a question. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's how the book ends. And you might be saying, wait a minute, like, I want to know what Jonah said. (laughs) I want to know what happened. I want to know if he himself repented or if he kept on with evil in his heart. Well, if we're not told how Jonah responded, then what I, what I would say to you is that we need to trust the Bible on this one. And what the Bible says is more important than what it doesn't say. And if the Bible doesn't give us Jonah's answer, it must be because that's not the important thing. The important part is how you and I will answer that question. Should we not pity the great cities of the world that don't know God? How are we going to obey God in his missionary call to proclaim the gospel to the world? Do we have the same missionary heart that God has? I think the book leaves us hanging here with the question because we are meant to ponder the question ourselves, not what Jonah's answer was. How will we respond to God's call? I really like that we're studying Jonah right in the middle of our partnership with Search Ministries. Many of you are inviting your friends and are praying for them to the Search Ministries Open Forum series where non-Christians can show up in a really neutral, inviting environment with good company and good people and good food and get some honest answers to the honest questions that they have about the world and about Christianity. And there is so much in this book of Jonah that helps us as Christians share our faith with others. There's one last thing that I wanted to share with you. Where's the gospel in Jonah? I mean, how do we see Jesus in this Old Testament book? In chapter one, we're told that Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. 
He went down into the inner part of the ship, and in chapter 2, he goes down to the base of the mountains at the bottom of the sea. Jonah is going everywhere and anywhere except where God wants him. And in chapter 2, he literally and figuratively hits rock bottom. He hits the base of the mountains at the bottom of the sea, and the bars close behind him. And there is no way out. Have you ever hit rock bottom? Have you ever come to the end of yourself? Have you ever run out of options? Maybe you've dealt with addiction in your past. Maybe you've been alienated from a family member. Or maybe you've lost a job. And maybe you've felt completely empty and defeated. That's where Jonah is. He's at the bottom of the sea. He is at rock bottom. And in chapter 2 it says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's about as bad as it can get. <laughs> so when you get to the end of yourself and you hit rock bottom and there is no way out, what are you going to do? Where do you turn? Because sometimes God lets us hit rock bottom to strip away all the things that there are between us and him. And so we can realize that he's the only person who can bring us up. You know what? When I asked if anyone has ever hit rock bottom in here, every single person has. Every person in this room has hit rock bottom at some point. Because there was a time for every person in this room where you did not know God. Where you were estranged from him. When you were alienated from God. There was a time that every single person in this room that you were separated from God because of your sin. And maybe it didn't feel like rock bottom, but it was. Being separated from God is as low as it can get. And if that is still you, and if you are still separated from God because you do not know him, and you don't know that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross and in your place and for your sins, you are at rock bottom. And it may not feel that way, but it is. And there is only one way to be rescued. Jonah can't swim to the surface by himself. Jonah can't work his way back up to God. God has to reach down into the depths of the sea and pull Jonah back up. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ that we were all once separated from him because of our sin, and there is nothing that we can do to work our way back to God, to earn God's favor. But it took the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to accomplish salvation for us, and so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 2, in the second half of verse 6. Look at it. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. What the book of Jonah shows us is that God can rescue even the worst sinners, even the most disobedient people. God can even rescue people who are running in the opposite direction away from him, like Jonah. God can reach down into the darkest places and bring people out to save them. And if that's you, if you're at rock bottom, you can be rescued here today. You can find salvation in Jesus Christ today by trusting and believing in him. This is how we see the gospel in Jonah. And Jesus saw the same thing. Jesus saw Jonah as a picture of what he was about to do. If you want to turn in your Bible forward to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus actually talks about Jonah twice in Matthew, and this is one of those places. Matthew 12, starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Two points here. First, Jesus uses the story of Jonah in the belly of the fish as a precursor to his death and resurrection. Jesus took the story of Jonah as being true and as a picture of what was about to happen to him. Dying, being buried, and rising again after three days. He says this will be a sign to validate all the claims that Jesus has made. The second thing to notice is that Jesus says the men of Nineveh who repented it in Jonah's generation will rise up at the last day and condemn Jesus' generation because they repented at the preaching of a minor prophet. The Pharisees have the Son of God standing right in front of them, and they don't believe him. So you might ask, why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? I mean, didn't it not really have that long-lasting of effect? Didn't these people wipe out the nation of Israel like 50 years later? Like, good job, Jonah. Like, didn't really work all that well, did it? I think what Jesus is saying, one of the big reasons why God sent Jonah to Nineveh is so that there would be a generation of people in the Bible who would leave the Pharisees without excuse that when they had the Son of God standing right in front of them, they didn't believe him. That they saw the Messiah for themselves, and they didn't believe what he said. If pagans can repent at the preaching of Jonah, the Pharisees have no excuse for not repenting at the preaching of Jesus. Another way that the New Testament uses Jonah, I believe, is in Mark chapter 4. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just go read Mark chapter 4, and then read Jonah chapter 1. The similarities are obvious there. I think Mark was sort of crafting his narrative with the story of Jonah in mind, just making one more connection between Jesus and Jonah. It's the story of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. 
One of the things that you'll see is that Jesus was asleep like Jonah. He was awakened by the sailors who said that they were perishing. And after he rebukes the storm, there is a great calm. Just one more connection between Jesus and Jonah. Jonah's going to get thrown into the sea and three days later come out. Same thing with Jesus. There's so much more that I wish I could share with you in our short time together from this little but amazing book. But over the next four weeks, you're going to get a lot of great preaching from your pastors on this short but important book. And my prayer is that it will cause us in this room, in this church, to stir our hearts, to make our heart more in line with God's heart. That he has a heart for the hardest people. That God has a missionary heart for the world, for people that don't know him. And that there are so many people in your life and outside the walls and windows who desperately need to hear the gospel of God and what Jesus did for them on the cross. And I think that's the good news of the entire book of Jonah. I think the good news of Jonah is that God has a heart for the hardest people. So he gives us the task of spreading his gospel to all the nations. So I'm excited for these next four weeks. I pray that it is helpful and beneficial to you. I pray that it's glorifying to God. And I pray that we get just a little bit more of God's heart, his missionary heart for the world and for the hardest people. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book. Thank you for these people, Lord, that your spirit is stirring up to have a heart more like your heart. For those people whose hearts have been hardened towards you. God, I pray that by your spirit that the people who are in our lives, that their hearts would be softened. That they would be receptive to hear not only what you have done, but what you are doing and what you're going to do. About how through what you did by your son on the cross, Lord, that even the hardest people can be saved. And that you call us to be obedient to the call to spread your message to the world. I pray that you would empower us to do that. I pray that it would be glorifying to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.